Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We'll be looking this morning at the first chapter. John's Gospel, we'll read chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 13. Please follow along as I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray once more together. Holy Spirit, Please come, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're in the beginning of a series on the Gospel of John, and last week we considered the first five verses of John's Gospel. We did that under two main headings. We looked first at the identity of the Word. We're introduced to the Word in verse 1. And so we looked first at his identity, and then secondly, at his activity. First, under the identity of the word, we considered the meaning of this word, logos, which is translated uh, the word, and why John chooses to use this word to introduce his gospel, and indeed to introduce Jesus Christ to us in his gospel account. And we concluded last week that the word, the logos, is a reference to the self-expression or self-revelation of God. And in the Old Testament, we observe that the Word was God's agent of creation, His agent of revelation, and His agent of salvation. And of course, John tells us in verses 1 through 2, speaking of this Word, that He was pre existent, that is, He was in the beginning, even before the creation began, that He was distinct from God, and that He truly was God. That was the identity of the Word, who we, of course, learn later is Jesus Christ. Then we considered the activity of the Word. First of all, we observe that the Word created the world. That is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the Creator God. You look at the Grand Canyon, you can say, my Jesus made that. You look at a beautiful sunset, that is the handiwork of Jesus Christ Himself, who was the Word of God. But we also saw, secondly, under the activity of the Word, that the Word brings with Him life 
and light. Indeed, that's what verse four tells us. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. And since life is in him, he dispenses eternal life to all those who embrace him in repentance and faith. And he also, of course, brings light. Light in the sense of saving light and revelation that all who believe on him, as John goes on to say, will not remain in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, now John takes this thread of light. He's leaving behind for a moment the category of the word and the category of life, and he, he seizes on that term light, and he, he sort of pulls that thread into the next few verses that we're going to consider this morning. We're going to look at verses 6 through 13 of the opening prologue of John's gospel and consider what John has to say about the word who was the light, the implications thereof. Three headings in this morning's message to organize our consideration of John 1, verses 6 through 13. Uh, the first is this. We want to consider John, the witness to the light. Secondly, Jesus, the true light. And then thirdly, responses to the light. So we have the witness to the light, who is John the Baptist, the true light, who is Christ himself, and then responses to the light. So first of all, consider with me John, the witness to the light. Uh, let's pick up actually in verse four, if you would, and we'll read through verse eight. In him, that is in the word, uh, Jesus Christ, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now the man named John who's introduced in verse six is not John the apostle who's writing this gospel. That is John the son of Zebedee. Uh, this John is popularly known to us as John the Baptist. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're reading this opening prologue of John's gospel, it might seem a little strange uh, first of all, that John is introduced at this juncture in verse 6 and sort of the manner in which he's introduced in a, uh, uh, a section of Scripture that's remarkably poetic, in some ways mysterious. All of a sudden, something very prosaic and mundane is introduced. There was a man uh, sent from God. And it almost feels like uh, perhaps John the Apostle wrote the first five verses of the gospel, then got up, took a break, came back and then picked up his narrative again with this line, there was a man sent from God who was John. Well, of course, that's probably not what happened. Uh, I think that John is actually doing something very deliberate here. He knows uh, what he's doing. He writes for a purpose. And my best understanding of what it is John's doing by introducing John the Baptist now in verse six is to introduce this remarkable contrast between the word, the life, the light, who, who indeed was very God himself, and this man sent from God. There was the word who was God, and then there's this, this man, John, who was sent from God. And I think that because we're going to see that contrast between this, this man, John, who's a witness to the light. We're going to see that contrast between him and the word, the light himself, deepen as the text unfolds. So let's consider what this text has to tell us about John the Baptist. There's just a few things I want us to appreciate at this stage in the Gospel of John. We're going to see a lot more about John over the next few chapters 
of the gospel. But just a few things to observe here up front. First of all, we see that John was sent from God. He was a man sent from God. He had a commission, a mission from God himself. Now, you may know that there are actually a few Old Testament texts that make reference to John the Baptist that foretell of his coming as a forerunner to Jesus Christ the Messiah. The most important text for our consideration is Malachi 3.1. You don't need to turn there, but there in Malachi chapter 3, the first verse, we read this. This is God speaking. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Hundreds of years before the coming of John the Baptist, God tells us that there's this forerunner that's going to come. I'm going to send a messenger. He's going to have a mission, and that mission is to, in some sense, prepare the way for the Lord, for the Messiah who is to come. So John the Baptist is sent from God. And brothers and sisters, all those who are sent from God must be heeded. And indeed, Jesus is going to uh, confront the religious leaders of that day who did not heed the witness of John the Baptist. Second thing to observe about John the Baptist is his role. John's role was that of a witness. John's role was that of a witness. Look again with me at verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Now it's interesting, at least I find it interesting, you might find it interesting, John is never referred to as John the Baptist in John's Gospel, but he's repeatedly referred to as John the Witness in various forms throughout the Gospel. Uh, the word used for witness is used 14 times in connection with John's name in this Gospel account. Uh, and that word witness is used many more times than that. The idea of witnesses to Jesus, huge concept in John's gospel. In some cases, those are uh, people who give witness to the Messiah. In other cases, it's Jesus uh, 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 looking to various witnesses in terms of perhaps the works he did or the scriptures or things like that. Various witnesses factor very largely in John's gospel. And the reason they come up again and again, at least in John's usage, is for the purpose of establishing credible legal testimony. That's how the word is used. And so John appeals to several witnesses throughout the book, and John the Baptist is one of the foremost of those witnesses. So John the Apostle is telling us here about John the Baptist's ministry, or John the Witness's ministry. And he describes it as this one of bearing witness to the light, to Jesus Christ himself. But it's not just that John the Apostle looked back in retrospect and concluded yeah, that's basically the role and function that John served. We actually have the words of John the Baptist himself who, who conveys that he understood this role of witnessing, bearing witness to the Messiah as his unique function in redemptive history. And so I'm going to ask you to turn just a couple pages over to John chapter 3. We want to get John the Baptist or John the witness in his own words. In John chapter 3 verses 25 through 30. So we've heard what John the Apostle has to say about John the Baptist, now John in his own words. Verse 25 of chapter 3, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, 
He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. I guess they were trying to make him jealous uh, about that, I suppose. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I, along with a number of others, had the opportunity to be the friend of a bridegroom recently. And the best part of that wedding that happened recently here at Emmanuel uh, was seeing the groom look on his face as his bride processed down the aisle. It's the best part of any wedding. Well, John is telling us here, using that sort of imagery, he says, I'm not the bridegroom. Don't make that mistake. He, the one I bear witness about, he's the bridegroom. I'm just the bridegroom's friend looking on, and the bride is not mine. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, Christ. Like John said back in John 1, I'm not the light. But he comes to bear witness about the light. John is saying, don't look at me, don't make much of me. My ministry is meant to point you to Jesus. We could say John's ministry is a look at him ministry. He wants people to be looking at Jesus, and if he fades to the background, and Jesus gets center stage and gets all the glory, that's the purpose for which John came, to bear witness about the light. Now, this is not the main point of our text this morning in John 1, but it's still a point, I think, worth making from this text. I think there are huge implications here in John 1, also in John 3, concerning the ministry of John the Baptist or John the Witness for those today who bear witness about Christ. You know this, right? Christ still has his witnesses. In many ways, John was a forerunner of those who were to come to bear witness to Christ Perhaps the most modern-day parallel would be uh, those who preach or perhaps some sort of public Christian figures or those who write about uh, Christian theology or the gospel, but really anyone who bears witness to Christ today. And the question that came to my mind this week as reading these accounts of the ministry of John the Baptist is this. How do we present ourselves even as we present Jesus? How do we present ourselves as we present Jesus? When people hear us speak of Christ, is it in a way that exalts ourselves along with Christ? As far as John the Baptist is concerned, that's an impossibility. He must increase, I must decrease. I cannot be exalted alongside of Christ. I need to fade to the background. He needs to take the foreground. More of Christ, less of me. That's John's perspective. And so I say this, brothers and sisters, if you're bothered by the self-exalting, self-serving, self-aggrandizing language of some popular Christian figures, you should be. That's not the way it's supposed to be if we're talking about faithful witness to Jesus Christ. Those who speak of Christ, who represent him, who bear witness to him, need to know their place. He must increase, and we must decrease. And so, friends, I tell you, beware of the preacher who speaks more of himself than of Christ. Beware of the preacher who constantly angles to put himself in a good light, even when he's speaking about his own sins and failures. 
Beware of the preacher who frequently finds ways to bring up his own accomplishments. Beware of the name dropper. Beware of the man who loves to bask in the praise and approbation of man. And brothers and sisters, we should not just look outward, we should also look in our hearts and recognize the dangers that are there in our own hearts, regardless of what uh, public Christian figures say of themselves. We must beware of making too much ourselves of any preacher or public Christian figure in our own hearts. We should beware of the temptation to be taken up with the witness and not with the light to whom the one bears witness. Our hearts are to be enraptured and taken up with Christ himself, not the witness. Beware the inclination in your own heart to be followers of men. We must beware the inclination in our hearts to be impressed with or to be captivated by charismatic leaders. I so appreciate what J.C. Ryle has written on this point. He says this, quote, Christian ministers are not priests, nor mediators between God and man. They are not agents into whose hands men may commit their souls and carry on their religion by deputy. They are witnesses. They are intended to bear testimony to God's truth and especially to the great truth that Christ is the only Savior and the light of the world. And unless a Christian minister bears a full testimony to Christ, he is not faithful to his office. Well, this is the ministry of John the Baptist. He is a witness. His role is to bear witness to the light. His ministry is a look at him or look to him ministry. Third thing to see about John the Baptist, last thing to see in this text, uh, John the witness to the light. And that is the purpose of his witness, the purpose of his witness, which is the same as that of the entire gospel. Namely, that people might have faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the light of the world. His role is that of a witness, and the purpose of that role, the function he serves, is that of the entire gospel. Namely, that people might have faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the light of the world. Verse 7 says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. For what purpose? That all might believe through him. I personally believe the through him means through John or, or through John's witness. It could mean through the light, namely Christ, but I think more accurately it should be understood as through, through John, through John's witness. And if we understand the words through him to mean through John or through the witness of John, the idea is that all might believe through the human instrumentation of a preacher bearing witness to Christ. The means that God is using to introduce people to salvation is the one who bears witness about the light. Throughout history, redemptive history, God wants to save a people. He raises up preachers. He raises up witnesses to bear witness about the light. That's what Romans 10 tells us. How are they to hear without a preacher? The emphasis in verse 7 is on the human witness that God uses. The purpose of John the Baptist through his witness is the purpose of John the Apostle through his witness in this gospel, that people might believe. Why did John write his gospel? That people might believe on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and have eternal life through him. Why did John the Baptist come and bear witness about the light? That people might believe and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of John's ministry. His work is done when people believe on Jesus Christ. When the friend of the bridegroom sees the bride in the bridegroom's arms, it's time to go home. His ministry is complete when he sees the bride and her groom off on their honeymoon for all eternity. That's a job well done for John the Baptist. He came as a witness 
to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Well, please now look, at, look with me secondly, Jesus, who is said to be the true light. Consider John the witness to the light. Now Jesus, the true light. Look with me at verse nine. The true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now the focus is off of that man sent from God, John the Baptist, John the witness, and it's back on the word, the life, the light, namely Jesus himself, and he's said to be the true light. Now remember, at this point, we've not been told yet that the word was made flesh. That comes in verse 14. We, of course, know that already, but John the apostle has not yet revealed that to us. Exactly what John is talking about in verse 9 may still be nebulous in the minds of some of his readers. But here in verse 9, at least the picture is beginning to become a little more clear. The light was coming into the world, the true light which enlightens every man. We're getting a little bit clearer picture, which will ultimately become clear in verse 14. Well, all I want to do under this point for now is to examine those words in the middle of verse 9, which gives light to everyone. He was the true light, which gives light to everyone. He was coming into the world. I wonder, what, what do you make of that phrase, the true light who, who gives light to everyone? What does that mean? What are we to make of, of that statement in verse nine? Well, I think it's helpful to ask what are our basic options? What are the things it might mean when we read that phrase? And I think there are th mainly three possible interpretations of that phrase. First of all, it could mean that God gives a sort of general illumination to every person in the world. So the true light who enlightens or illumines every man. He's giving a general sort of illumination to every man. You could call it the light of nature. You could call it the light of general revelation or the light of conscience. But it is the idea that there is within every individual some sort of common grace or common light from Christ whereby they should know that he exists and that they are accountable to him. This is a very common interpretation of the text, and I confess a very uh, a possible interpretation, though it's not uh, the interpretation that I think is the best. A second way we could understand the text is that Christ, as the light of the world, gives saving light to everyone. So, so not just general light, like the light of conscience or the light of nature, but, but saving light, that they might be saved and no longer walk in darkness. This is uh, the angle that universalists would take on this text. I am certain that this text should not be interpreted that way, and it's not even really a possible interpretation of the text. A third way we could understand that phrase, which gives light to everyone or gives light to every man, is the way I choose to understand the text. Uh, the Greek verb here that is translated gives light, probably says gives light in whatever translation you're using, can also quite easily be translated shines upon or sheds light on. And I think this is the way the verb should be understood here, especially given the immediate context of the prologue of John's gospel and the larger context of the entire book, which focuses on the different effects Christ, the light of the world, has on various people. So I think the text here should be read the true light who shines on everyone or sheds light on everyone was coming into the world. 
Now you say, I don't, I don't really get the, the difference. I don't really get the point you're trying to draw out there. The difference is that to give light to everyone, to give light, which is not the interpretation I think we should put on this text, to give light to everyone implies an internal work of illumination in people. Whereas shining upon people, shedding light upon, would be the idea of this light breaking in upon people from outside of them and it having various effects on various people. So the true light is shining on people and it's, it's doing a work as it shines on them. I think John 1.9 is telling us that the true light shines upon everyone and divides them. The light breaks in and shines upon people and some are drawn to the light and others recoil at the light. And isn't this precisely what we see happening in the next few verses and precisely what happens throughout the rest of John's gospel? Jesus shines as the light of the world and some people are drawn to that light and believe on him as the light of the world and others recoil back into darkness and their evil deeds. That's what I think the work of the light is in this text, to force a distinction, to divide humanity into those who are drawn to the light, those who recoil from it. Now there's a number of examples later on in John's gospel that I could give to justify this interpretation of verse nine. I'm just gonna direct your attention to one, and it's found in chapter three again, verses 19 through 21. So if you just turn over the page to John three, Verses 19 through 21. Observe here the effect that light has. The differing effects the light has on different people. We read this, John 3 verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See what's happening here. Light shines upon people, and it has two different sort of effects. For those who love darkness because their deeds are evil, they recoil at the light, lest their evil deeds be seen, and they have to come to an account for those evil deeds. And then for others, they're drawn to the light. In other words, in saving faith, they believe on the Lord Jesus as the light of the world and embrace the light and allow that light to come into their lives that they may not remain in darkness. Light shines upon people and forces a distinction. And it's this distinction that we turn to now in the third and final point. So we've seen John the witness to the light, that was the first point. Jesus the true light coming into the world and shining upon men and women, forcing a distinction. And now thirdly, consider with me responses to the light. Look with me again at verses nine and we'll read on down through verse 13. The true light, which gives light to or shines upon everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There are huge themes introduced in these verses. I'm just going to take a 30,000 foot angle on them today, and we'll flesh them out in greater depth as 
we move throughout the book. But we see here at least that there are two responses to the light envisioned in this passage. One, of course, is negative, rejection of the light or recoiling from the light, and one is positive. Some do not receive him and some do receive him. Let's look at both responses in turn. First of all, negative responses to the light. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. All right, first of all, in verse 10, we have the very first reference to the world in John's gospel, the world. And uh, this is the first reference. Uh, the Greek word is cosmos. You think of the word cosmic or uh, cosmology. It means world. This word is used in John's gospel, this word for world, 78 times. Now by contrast, this word is used only eight times in Matthew's gospel, only three times in Mark's gospel, and only three times in Luke's gospel. So, so up front, just with that little bit of information, you, you should be thinking, the concept of the world is probably a pretty big deal to John. It might be a pretty big theme in this book. Well, now it's here that I really need to make a very important point for our study with John that I hope we understand today and carry with us throughout this series. It is with respect to this word world and its usage in John's gospel. Like I said, the, the world, cosmos, mentioned 78 times in John. Now in the Bible, that word for world, that word world, could be used in three different ways. It could be used neutrally, it could be used negatively, and it could be used positively. That is, that word world could have neutral overtones, negative overtones, or positive overtones. So how does John use the word in his gospel? Well, there are a handful of times in which the word world would be used neutrally. So an example would be the very last verse of the gospel, John 21, verse 25, where John writes this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. There's nothing positive or negative about the world. It's just seen as this great sphere, in this case, this great library, where all these books about Jesus could be written and filed and stored. It's just a, a neutral use of that word, world. Well, there's a few usages like that, a handful of usages like that in John's gospel. The word world is never once used positively in John's gospel. Not a single time is the word world employed uh, uh, meant to convey something positive about the world itself. Almost every usage, something around 90% of the usages of this word world come to us in ways that are plainly negative. Like in our text, for example, the world is that, that sphere that rejected Christ. Um, strikingly negative overtones to the usage of that word World. So here's the point I want to stress for our study of the Gospel of John. When you see the word world in John's Gospel, almost always it means something like this. The created order in active rebellion against God. When you see that word world, at least in John's usage, not every usage in the Bible, but in John's usage, the world is the created order, created sphere, in active rebellion against against God. So you have a text like John 3.16, God so loved the world. And it's interesting to me, a lot of people seem to see in that text so much about the loveliness of the world. Uh, I assure you that's not the point we're supposed to get from John 3.16. 
Uh, to me, it says a lot about the, the large-heartedness and the magnanimity of God that he would love the world. That is the created order in active rebellion against God. What's being emphasized in John 3.16 is not the bigness of the world or, or the jolly old world or something like that. It's that God loved the world. The created order in active rebellion against him. It says much of God, not much of the world. And yet God loved even the world. That dark and evil sphere where men and women rejected him and rebelled against him as the creator God. And that says much, I think, of the heart of God. But even there in John 3.16, a negative usage of the word world. Well, we read in our text that the true light who created the world was in the world and the world did not know him, verse 10 tells us. What is the default posture of the world toward Christ? It is rejection of him. It is rebellion against its maker. The light shines upon them and they resist him. Brothers and sisters, we must understand that the world and human nature are fundamentally sinful and in active rebellion against God. Men love by nature darkness rather than light. You were born, my friend, loving darkness rather than light in rebellion against God. And parents, your children are born into this world in darkness, in rebellion against God. That's the default position of every man, woman, boy, and girl because we're part of the world. And what is the world? The created order in active rebellion against God. Well, then we move on to verse 11. So the, the, the world did not know him, the text says. And then in verse 11, the circle of those who rejected Christ gets more particular. Verse 11 says he came to his own. If you're reading in the ESV, it says, and his own people did not receive him. I appreciate what the ESV is trying to do there. Most translations say he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The ESV enlarges the meaning a little bit. He came to his own and his own people rejected him. His own people did not receive him. That's the idea there. It was the Jewish people who in a particular way rejected Christ. He came to his, his own special people, his own special flock, and the Jews, the Israelites, rejected the Lord Jesus. The sphere of those who are rejecting Christ becomes more narrow in verse 11. Surely the world did not know him, but his own people. He came to them, and they rejected him also. Now, I don't want to make too much out of something obscure in the text, but I think it's relevant to note that the language that you, that's used to describe Christ's revelation of himself to the Jews is a good bit stronger than the language that's used to describe Christ's revelation of himself to the world in general. So we read in verse 10, the true light was in the world. He was in the world, and the world didn't know him. But in verse 11, it says, he came to his own. He wasn't just in the world. In a sense, he came to his own. He came to them. He walked their streets. He was in their synagogues. In some cases, he was in their homes. Can you imagine, with all you know about the Lord Jesus, he's there at the table eating your bread, and you don't recognize him. You reject him. He was that close. He came to his own, to his own special people, and his own special people rejected him. Moreover, they crucified him and put him to death. Well, those are the negative responses in this text to the light. The world did not know him, and the Jews did not receive him. But now let's turn to the positive responses to the light, the positive responses. Look with me at verse 12 and 13. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What are the various, very obvious things we can see in this text that are true of those who received Christ? Well, the first thing we're told simply is that they believed in his name. That is, they had personal saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. What distinguishes those who receive Christ is believing faith. They have faith, unbelievers do not. The second thing we're told is that all who received him and who believed on his name were given the right to become children of God. We don't see this as clearly in our English translations, but there's something of a wordplay going on here. The idea in verse 11 is that he came to his own people by blood, his own uh, old covenant people, the Jews, and they rejected him. But now there were these others who believed on him, who received him, and to them he gave the right to become children of God. That is his own people. His own people by blood rejected him, but those who did believe in him, now they become his own people. They become even the children of God, part of the family of God. Now the doctrine of adoption, that is becoming sons and daughters of God, it's not opened up in great detail in John's gospel. It will factor in maybe one or two more times in the book. Uh, however, the doctrine of adoption in the Bible is most fully treated in another book that was written by John the Apostle. That's an epistle written several years later that we know as 1 John. And there, more than any other book, we have the exposition of this doctrine of adoption. Well, there in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, we read this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. The second half of that text I just read, therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Do you hear the echoes of John 1 and verse 10? He was in the world and the world did not know him. Now writing several years later, John's saying, people don't know us because they did not know him. And of course, back in John 1, verse 12, we were given the right to become the children of God. That's what he says in 1 John years later. Beloved, now we are the children of God. So the true light, Christ himself, the light of the world, shines upon every individual and forces a distinction, a division. There are those who do not know him, do not receive him, do not come to the light, but shrink back and recoil in darkness. And then there are these others, apparently, who receive him, who have saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and who even become themselves children of God. Well, this is where I want to land the plane for our time this morning. There's a crucial question we must ask ourselves coming to the end of verse 12 and into verse 13. If the world, as I said a moment ago, as John tells us, is the created order in active rebellion against God, that's the default posture of the world. We're all born rebels against God. And if men and women are born in darkness and indeed love darkness rather than light by nature, how can it be that some people are said to receive Christ and have saving faith in him. The world did not know him, his own people did not receive him, and yet there's these people 
verse 12, who did receive him, who had saving faith, who had the right to become children of God. How did that happen? Again, if the world is the created order and act of rebellion against God, and indeed we're all part of the world, why do some people have faith in Jesus Christ? Why do some people receive him? Why are some people believers and not unbelievers? Well, I think verse 13 answers this question. Look with me again, beginning in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The answer for John is bound up in the new birth that he just introduces now. He's going to open it up big time later in John chapter 3. Why do some people believe and not others? Why do some people come toward the light and don't recoil in darkness? John tells us because they've been born again. They've been born of God. Salvation is a result of God's will and not man's will. And this is how John makes the point. He does it first with a few negations. He says, they were born not of blood. That is the idea of natural descent. We were all born of our parents, we could say, of, of blood, of natural descent, of physical descent, like human birth. He says, those who are the children of God, they were born, but, but not through human means. He says, they were not born of the will of the flesh. That is probably a reference to sexual desire. The idea is that if you want to have a child, there's things you can do. If you want to see a child of God produced, there is nothing you can do. They were not born of the will of the flesh, not the result of human activity. And then the third negation, not born of the will of man, which makes the point emphatically clear that man has nothing to do with the production of faith or the securing of the status of a child of God. But then we finally have the answer given. How did these people become children of God? They became children of God because... They were born of God himself. He introduces the new birth. In other words, faith, receiving Christ, becoming a child of God, is the result of the will and the activity of God and God alone. And it's so significant a change that God brings about in the heart of rebels and those who walked in darkness and natively loved darkness. It's so significant a change that the only image he can use is that of new birth, being born all over again. What's old is gone now, and the new has come. New birth is the image he seizes upon. The light, the true light, who came into the world divides us and forces a distinction. But brothers and sisters, it doesn't divide us on the basis of what's in us or what we do. There is a distinction, and the distinction is ultimately bound up in an act of God, namely the new birth. And this gets at a crucially important question that is sort of like at the baseline of our theology, a question that we all need to answer correctly and biblically. If someone were to ask you, believers here in this room, those who love the light and have come into the light and no longer remain in darkness, if someone were to ask you, what was the determinative factor in your salvation? In other words, why are you a believer and not an unbeliever? Why didn't you go the way of the world and reject Christ just like all the Jews did and the world who did not know the Lord Jesus? 
What is the thing, the ingredient, what I'm calling the determinative factor that made you a believer and not an unbeliever? What would you say? How would you answer that question? It's a question your children might ask you. Mom, dad, I know uncle so-and-so is not a Christian, but you're a Christian. Why is there a difference? What, what was the determinative factor in bringing about that difference? Friends, there are 10,000 wrong answers to that question. There's only one right answer to that question because God did something. God changed me. God wooed me. God drew me to himself and caused me to love him and to come to him. John 6, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God did some stuff. And he changed my heart and he changed my life. The determinative factor was not because I was just, I had the wherewithal. I made a really wise choice when I was eight years old. No, that's not the reason for the difference. You were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. We have here emphatically stated that salvation is ultimately an act of God himself. Another question that could be asked to you that gets at the same point is this. How do you know, Christian, that you'll wake up tomorrow and have saving faith? You have faith right now, but how do you know Monday morning that you'll have faith? That's just what I do. I made a great choice all those years ago, and I make good choices day after day, and I'm sure I'll make the right choice again tomorrow. My will is strong. I love the Lord Jesus. I'm going to have faith again tomorrow morning. No. You will have faith tomorrow because you were born again, not by blood, not by the will of the flesh, not by your own will, but you were born again through the will and activity of the living God. What produces the distinction? Why is anybody embracing the light? Because God saves them by his grace and causes them to be born again. So, so essential and profound a change must take place. Otherwise, all of us would love darkness rather than light. None of us would come toward Jesus Christ the light of the world. And friends, we have to appreciate this. The conundrum is not, well, why does he save some people and not others? For he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, compassion on whom I will have compassion. No, the scandal is this. Why on earth does God save anyone from this world? This created order in active rebellion against God. That's the problem John presents to us at the outset. And wonderfully, beautifully, He's going to open up the answer over the course of the next 20, 21 chapters. Now to close, there's one more question you might be asking. Does this truth, that salvation is entirely the result of the will of God, sovereign activity of God, does that truth negate the call to believe? That salvation is ultimately bound up in the will of God. Does it negate the fact that you, my friend, must place your faith in Jesus Christ? The answer, according to John, is a resounding no. The word, meaning believe, pistuo, 
is used in various forms 98 times in John's gospel, almost in every single chapter, never once as a noun. You don't have the word faith in John's gospel. You don't have the word belief. The word occurs 98 times, every time in the verb form, as in the activity that must be done. You must believe. And again and again and again, Jesus himself calls men and women to actively believe upon him in saving faith. This is the message of John's gospel. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John sees no contradiction in these two statements. Salvation is caught up in the sovereign will of God and in the new birth that he alone grants to a sinner, and yet every single sinner, lost in sin, loving darkness, in rebellion against God, is called to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so I call you along with John this morning to believe upon him, to put your trust in him, that you too might have everlasting life. I'll close with the words of a preacher better than myself. He says this, Christ is to the souls of men what the Son is to the world. He is the center and source of all spiritual light, warmth, life, health, growth, beauty, and fertility. And like the sun, he shines for the common benefit of all mankind, for high and for low, for rich and for poor, for Jew and for Greek. Like the sun, he is free to all. All may look at him and drink health out of his light. If millions of mankind were mad enough to dwell in caves underground or to bandage their eyes, their darkness would be their own fault, not the fault of the sun. So likewise, if millions of men and women love spiritual darkness rather than light, the blame must be laid on their blind hearts and not on Christ. But whether men will see or not, Christ is the true Son, the light of the world, and there is no light for sinners except in the Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, I tell you this morning, you can have the light of life. There is no other light. You do not have to dwell in darkness. You do not have to remain in darkness. Maybe even now you're keenly aware of the darkness that touches your heart and your life. You don't have to stay there. You can come to Jesus who is the light of the world and he'll receive you and his light will break upon you and you will have everlasting life. Let's pray together.